0: Hello and welcome to Cage Club, two fans, 75 movies, one cage. This is episode 62, Sorcerer's Apprentice, from 2010, directed by John Turtletaub. I'm Mike Manzi.
1: And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us today we have Tobin Addington, returning once again. Hello Tobin. Hey guys, glad to be here. So this movie, there's a lot... I don't know. I don't want to say there's a lot less to talk about than knowing, but I feel like we picked apart knowing bit by bit. This movie is a sort of a different kind of movie. This is sort of more of a family friendly affair. John Turtletaub, the director of the National Treasure Movies, once again a Jerry Bruckheimer joint. There's a, it's, a, it's a very different kind of movie with different things to talk about.
2: That is a very polite way of describing this movie <laughs> compared to something like knowing or, or even bringing out the dead.
0: Yeah, and this is uh, Fantasy Cage here, right? For the first time, I believe, a family fantasy film with the Disney machine behind it the driving force you know Bruckheimer back in the saddle
1: so this is a movie that apparently Cage like this is a movie that Cage wanted to make that he was interested in playing a character and living in a world where just magic existed and so I don't know I mean he didn't have anything to do with writing the script as far as I can tell but from what I read he sort of he must have gone just to Jerry Bruckheimer or connections at Disney were just like I want to make something where I get to do magic and just sort of make something happen and then this is what we got
0: the way I heard it is, yeah, he like you said, like he was looking for a fantasy project and they had the Sorcerer's Apprentice property? I don't know what you want to call it exactly, but Disney owning the rights to Fantasia and that wonderful segment in there with Mickey Mouse and the wizard and everything and the dancing brooms, they really wanted to do that sequence at least, if not make that movie and it just seems sort of like he wants to do a magic thing, here's a magic thing, like let's sort of try and make something out of it.
1: I guess it's based on Fantasia. They pay homage to it in the middle of the movie when there's the mop sequence and the after credit scene where we see the Sorcerer's Apprentice hat. I don't really remember Fantasia too well. Is this... I know that there's the Sorcerer and Mickey is sort of the apprentice. Is this all the same story or is it not the same story?
2: It's not the same story as Fantasia. Fantasia is a collection of animated vignettes set to famous classical pieces, as I recall. And Sorcerer's Apprentice being the most iconic and the one that people know the best. If you squint really hard... You can see how they've sort of extrapolated this story out of that segment. But the rest of Fantasia has nothing to do with the section with Mickey.
0: For the most part, this is completely disconnected from what I can tell, aside from the homage paid in the middle of the film and in the title, pretty much. What I'm really getting out of this, and I'm getting it early, when they drop the name of all names, as far as I'm concerned, right off the bat, Merlin. You drop Merlin, and my mind just goes to the once and future. future king and the sword in the stone and the legend of Camelot and all that stuff comes with it and it's almost as if they should have tried to just make a modern version of that and maybe that's what they were trying to do.
2: I wish that was what they were trying to do. Or at least I wish they did it better if that's what they were aiming for. <laughs> I think I would have liked that a lot better. Or keep it in 750 A.D. in Britain and, and have it play out there. I think I think I would have been more for that as well. I'm not
1: sure what I was expecting with this movie, but it begins with such an info dump of voiceover. Like you said, like yeah. it started, we're just in Britain in 750. I was like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> they're like, okay, there's Merlin, and then there's three other magicians, and they're saying all these different names. And they're like, this guy's good. This guy's bad. They trusted three they should have only trusted two and there's this and there's that and there's this person and that person and this relationship i'm like wait a minute like i don't know what any of this means i know merlin i know balthazar cage
3: it's sort of a lot to take in in the first i don't know like a minute and a half of the movie the war between sorcerers was fought in the shadows of history and the fate of mankind rested with the just and powerful merlin he taught his secrets to three trusted apprentices. Balthazar, Veronica, and Horvath. He should have trusted only two. Veronica and Balthazar witnessed the savagery of a sorcerer beyond evil. Morgana Le Fay, Merlin's most deadly enemy. And so it was. Morgana gained sorcery's most dangerous spell. Known as the Rising giving Morgana the power to raise an army of the dead and enslave mankind. Veronica sacrificed herself for Balthazar by drawing Morgana's soul into her own body. But Morgana began to kill her from the inside. To save Veronica's life and to capture Morgana, Balthazar trapped them both in the Grimhold, an inescapable prison. As Merlin lay dying, he gave Balthazar his dragon ring, saying it would guide him to the child who would one day grow to be Merlin's successor, the Prime Millennium. Balthazar would search for centuries. And never, it is said, will Balthazar waver from his quest. For mankind will never be safe until Morgana is destroyed by the Prime Millennium. Yeah, I have a note here
2: that says the speed of this opening is dizzying. You know, I, I can't <laughs> tell if it's too much, too fast, or if it's just too much, or if it's just too fast. I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. If you're familiar with Arthurian legends, you know these names are all familiar, and the sort of basics of the of the relationships are familiar. But if you're not, I could see that it could be it would sort of blow blow past you pretty quick.
0: Yeah, and to me, this is starting to feel like *Token Turtle Taub. We got this with both <laughs> National Treasure films, you know, like it starts off in the past with all this exposition and like, here's the big backstory mystery stuff. And, and we're going to jump to the present day. It's jarring even for someone that is kind of familiar with these names, you know, because they change some of them and, and shift some relationships. And I'm like, Merlin gets shanked. I'm like, he's yeah. <laughs> he looks like he was just born because I thought he lived backwards in time and stuff. Like, he should die when he's younger. Even if you are familiar with this stuff, it's weird how they appropriate it.
1: It sort of feels like Turtle Tub's movies would be better suited if you, like, read a 10-page short story before you saw the movie. Like, <laughs> you, had, you had homework, like, summer reading before you saw the movie. Because, really, like, all you need to know is that there's Merlin and there's three guys. And there's Cage, there's a woman Cage is in love with, and then there's a bad guy. And then there's some evil sorceress that they need to take down, Morgana Le Fay. The way that they do it, like, they just say so many names so fast. Dizzying is the right word, like Tobin said, because there's just so many things going on. We're not spending enough time, like, if they even had two sentences on each character, like, this is Balthazar, this is what he does, this is Veronica, this is who she is. But, like, it's just like, here's the three people... All right, you, you you saw them for 2 seconds on screen. We're good. Like we're just going to move on, right? And no, it's it's too, <laughs> it's
2: too much too fast. It seems to me that the stuff that the film is most interested in exploring is the stuff I'm least interested in exploring, and the stuff that they want to get through really fast just because you need the backstory, and this is like a cool, jazzy way to do it, is the stuff that I would be most interested in seeing explored a little bit more. It might make me feel more later on in in the movie. I totally agree.
0: It is starting to feel sort of rush, rush, rush right at the top here as well, and I'm starting to get a little worried that the rest of the film is sort of going to be overpacked and a little hard to follow at times such in the way that they're setting it up here you know it's almost like they're saying get ready to sort of be thrown for a loop and not quite know what's going on (laughs) but just sit back and try to ride the ride
1: but that's not like at all what the rest of the movie is the rest of the movie is not i don't want to say it's like leisurely paced but there's a lot of moments where you're just sort of like All right, like, where, what's going to happen now? It's sort of the opposite the anti-national treasure, that it's so weird that this director, that is almost, like, the entire movie feels like, all right, like, I can't catch my breath, we're off from here to England to the White House to here to there, and it's like, okay, there's always something happening. In this movie, it's like all right, like let's go to the like NYU's radio station and watch this girl spin discs for like five minutes. Like I guess, like that's just something that we're going to spend time
2: on because we don't really have like, we don't have much of a story to tell. Yeah, because they told so much of it in the first <laughs> in the first four minutes. You know, how cool would it be to you know they have this quick after Merlin is killed, which I was really disappointed that as Mike as you say he got shanked. I mean, to knife Merlin and that's and he died like that's such a bummer of a way to go for Merlin. Then you have this section where Cage is walking through the centuries and through the world, searching for the prime Merlinian, for this, you know, the savior, the hero. That would have been a cool movie. I I sort of want to see that. I want to see his search, you know, through the deserts, through the jungle, across the seas, and through time. Like, that would have been, I think that could have been a pretty cool movie. In In fact, maybe we should make that. I mean, that
0: was wonderful, just to see all the different versions of Balthazar, too, the way he changes through time and stuff, and there's so much material there, they could have spent at least a half hour on that, and, you know, focused perhaps more on Balthazar's journey what he's all about but they want to tell the story of dave you know the jay baruchel character instead which is a little unfortunate because he's just not nearly as interesting as this amazing wizard that they set up i think the movie's supposed to be about i'm sort of getting
1: like a matrix vibe cage is sort of morpheus and dave is kind of neo but it's not as exciting but it's sort of like they're looking for the one he's been spending his whole life looking for the one and then we sort of get the one. It's not like Neo where he has been searching for Morpheus as long as Morpheus has been searching for him. He's just like living a kid who, who's like hopelessly in love with a girl he can't have. And then just it's like, oh, I'm the sorcerer. I'm the prime Merlinian.
2: Okay, like that's, that's just my life now. Yeah, the, the movie seems to have two gears. And one is the sort of high fantasy magic thing. And the other is this juvenile stuff. And I mean, like truly, truly juvenile. I think one of the first things that the young Dave is told when his mom calls to him to wake him up, she's like, "Don't forget to wear clean underwear," or something. <laughs> like, and at first I thought, "Well, that's weird. Who needs to be reminded?" Maybe that's a character thing for him. And it's like, no, the movie's just interested in like that level of humor when we're with this kid. Oh, I just, that it got on my nerves <laughs> really, really quick. He is no Neo. I mean, did you like it any
1: better when he turns to the dog and says, "Hey, she's talking to me. She's not talking to you." <laughs>
2: That's exactly what I'm talking about. It, it just, they, double, they double down on all of those terrible jokes. It's not like grown terrible. It's like made for a, a 12-year-old boy. It's like, okay, that's maybe that is, I get, I'm probably not the demographic for this movie, but I could have been if it had been better.
0: One of the problems with this film is the genre clash. I noticed this a lot around this time. Like You get this with the Transformer movies where it's like, action crazy cool robot sci-fi and then the same type of humor fart joke type of stuff i'm a nerd with social issues or what do i say next i don't know it just feels a little tired and it just feels like it clashes with the fantasy stuff going on that it doesn't strike the right tone for me it doesn't it doesn't it's not even enough it's funny you mentioned the matrix because he kind of looks like keanu and i got, <laughs> I got like a vibe like that going through but this relationship is just much more episode one to me where it's like you're the chosen one because i said so follow me around and watch what i do and all that kind of
2: jazz could i put in a vote that you guys do keanu next because i think that of all the people you've talked about or considered he is someone who is maybe as misunderstood in a lot of ways as Cage is. It takes sometimes it takes watching a movie like this and seeing another character take on a another actor take on a similar kind of character to realize that. You know how good he is in those films. But that's The Matrix and this is The Sorcerer's Apprentice.
1: I mean we could do Keanu Club KK, you know, it's it, it works there too, so it's <laughs> definitely good. in the running. I think the easiest movie to compare this to that we've talked about is National Treasure because it's the same kind of audience, the same director, the same sort of feel. I'm trying to decide if I like this better than those. I like the Cage character in this better than those. I think that Balthazar is really interesting. I think that he's pretty cool. The jokes are groan worthy, but I just laugh that Cage was delivering it. Like, midway through the movie, Dave is there with Becky. He wants to have that date, and Cage's like, No, we have to, you know, we have to practice. We have to do your magic stuff. And then Cage, like, says that stupid, stupid line about getting your anti itch cream. Dave?
3: <laughs> is, is that company i hear uh that? yeah um okay fine uh becky th- this is my uh uncle uncle balthazar uh, hey uh, dave i'm confused i i thought you and i were staying in together right? <laughs> oh if
2: this is a bad
3: time yeah I- no actually no no uncle uh you and i have
1: plans uh for later on uh becky let's just get out of here
3: you know what it's all right because i just remembered i have to go into town to pick up your anti-itch cream <laughs> So, you two stay here. Pleasure to meet you it is the stupidest
1: line but just the fact that cage delivers it and the way he delivers it like i laughed out loud i was like this is stupid but i love it like i'm eating this up just because of him
2: yeah i'll take that over the kids laughing at young dave because it looks like he peed his pants because the water fell on his pants you know like I, I i will take cage making those jokes any day over the the level of the humor that the movie wants to give me when it's just dave
0: this is a really tough call because i really enjoyed those national treasure movies once i was able to get them straight in my head which was which and <laughs> what happened in which. Well, I don't like it as much. Like, the weird thing is, I like things about it better. Like, I love Alfred Molina in this film and I love his British Apprentice. I think anytime even the British Apprentice and Jay Baruchel are on screen, like, that stuff is working too. I love Cage in this movie. He wanted to play a wizard and he's playing a wizard. It looks a little like he stepped out of Middle Earth for 2010. Uh, it would have been <laughs> funny to have seen, uh, have a scene where he's like mistaken as a cop. Player with other people on their way to Comic-Con or something like that in New York City. Yeah, it's a tough call. Like, it definitely has that same sort of vibe. I might have to say National Treasure just because <laughs> I have less time to think about what's bad because they just keep going. <laughs> I see I hate to sound harsh. I hope that didn't come across too harsh.
1: No, 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 it's fine. Oh, well, we haven't started harsh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Give me a few so minutes. We don't get young Cage in this movie. It's not like National Treasure. It's not like Ghost Rider. We get young Dave. What I hate about this intro what i hate about this movie is what a lot of movies seem to do it's like we need to get this kid from this place to this other place and like they don't have a real actual way to do it like no kid as much as he likes this girl is going to just sprint through downtown manhattan blocks and blocks and blocks to find this sticky note that asks if the girl wants to be his friend or his girlfriend like it's so implausible i think but they need a way for him to get basically from the water to four or five blocks away into Cage's shop of antiquities that they need to get in there somehow. I just I don't like how that happens. I wish that the story like the plot getting him there, I know they have to set up the relationship between him and Becky and also get him to Cage's place. But I wish I did that in a different way.
2: The other thing that I that's driving me crazy in this early section of this movie are the really important moments that they're changing. For instance, the kid Dave goes into the shop, and Cage, as we've seen in this wanderer across the the world and the centuries, wants him to try on this ring. He has Cage has this ring, this dragon ring that's supposed to tell him if the kid in front of him is the prime Merlinian. And so he tries it on Dave, and it comes to life and it wraps around his finger. Cage's reaction is good, but so short, like they just have two quick cuts to his face as he realizes that this kid that he's been searching for, again, since 750 AD, right? He's been looking for this kid for hundreds and hundreds of years. They just sort of gloss right past it. This is the moment in his life. I rewound it twice. To watch it to make sure that I didn't miss the moment when this happens. And any movie that's going to shortchange a moment as big as that, it's, it's already given me, you know, I've already got tremors about what's going to come.
0: That's a really good point. You know, they just force a lot of stuff through this film. Like, Joey, the kid has to get to this antiquity shop. So his teacher doesn't notice, like, he leaves <laughs> his field trip. This is insane. Like, that teacher should be fired, and this kid would, like, never <laughs> make it three blocks. It's crazy. Yeah. So, like, that feels forced. In this shop to and you're totally right. This should be the moment. The heavens should right. part and, like, everything in the room should shatter and, like, he should expel this energy from his body or something big should happen and, like, accidentally release the evil guy. But instead, like, that's not what the editor, director, producer, I mean, it's like, the camel isn't happy with anything. So it just feels frantic. It feels like they're just going off of what a test audience is. It's like, oh, cut to the kid. Oh, back to cage. Oh, some magic. Some <laughs> magic.
1: <laughs> I do have to say, though, that the magic effects are really cool in this movie i mean this movie's not too old it's only five years old so it's pretty modern in terms of cgi but like the fire and the ice and the wind and all the everything like it looks very cool and so that's sort of what's keeping me into it whether it's cage doing the magic it all looks cool the sequence later where they're in chinatown and there's all the confetti it's visually striking like it's beautiful to look at it just (laughs) the plot does not match the visuals
2: yeah, and I think that's really what's eating at me is if this had just been terrible all the way through, oh I'd laugh at it, be oh that was sort of a dumb thing. But there's so much potential because as you say, you know, the choreography of some of those magic fights is pretty good and the and the special effects are very good. You know, I'm sort of believing that this world is integrated into ours in this way and that these people can do these things and that's all working and, and, and Mike, as you said, Alfred Molina, I'll watch him do almost anything, you know? He he's hamming it up just the right amount. But then every time we cut back to young Dave or an August there older dave for me it just dies pretty quickly i am mourning what this movie could have been i think
0: yeah, and, and I'm going to just lay it on the line and say I feel like this whole child Dave stuff is completely unnecessary, actually. <laughs> like, when we get on to it, I feel like this time could have been used better either exploring the Balthazar journey or just cutting straight to adult Dave running into Nick Cage at the antique store on his way to teaching physics class or things like that. You know, like, there are definite ways to deliver this information later down the line or, like, as the adult version of the boy. I don't know. I just felt like it was a st- step too far that was a little unnecessary do you think like it was absolutely necessary to check in on dave as a 10 year old and then 10 years later as an adult or do you think like they could have gotten all this across
1: i don't know i feel i feel like there's a there's a precedent that this movie sets in terms of time jumps right we start out in 750 we jump to 2000 and then in 2000 we see young dave and sort of this inciting incident we also get cage and alfred molina right trapped into that urn that all, and then we move forward so it's it's not just Dave sort of progressing, it's, it's like everything. I don't know we necessarily need to check on Dave at 10 years old, but I think it's kind of, I guess it sort of gives the movie an origin story in a way, and it also has us check in and we know, maybe as useless as it is, there is this thread throughout the movie about love and waiting for love and waiting hundreds of years or 10 years or whatever, I mean, I don't know that you need that, but I think that the passage of time works well into those themes. I mean, you can probably cut those themes out and just tell a normal love story, not one that has been waiting for 10 years, but I think that it works in that sense.
2: Yeah, I suppose. I, I think that maybe my guess is that the section comes from the animated thing in a bit, because isn't isn't Mickey sort of a hapless apprentice for the sorcerer, and he and he's clumsy and he drops things, and before he's left alone and, and brings the brooms to life and everything. And I think that we're getting some of that with this kid. This kid is meant to be that Mickey in that part of the sorcerer's apprentice. Now, is that a reason that it should be in the movie? I uh, don't know. don't know that it would have to be. In fact, I, I think that probably, you know, Joey's ideas about the thematic resonance of it is probably the best argument for keeping it in the movie. I don't think it could have been because I'm not sure that stuff pays off very well. Yeah, so I could sort of take it or leave it, I guess. What I find
1: weird about the time jump, when we jump 10 years later and we're in modern day, now all of a sudden it's Dave's birthday, which means that 10 years ago, the first time we see him, it's his birthday. And his mom just saying, like, make sure you wear clean underwear, not like, (laughs) hey, wake up, birthday boy, or like anything. It's just like, oh, wait, now it's his birthday? Because they even make a point to say, because it's a joke about the urn, it doesn't just say 10 years later, it says 10 years later, dot, 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 to the day. Like, this is the same day of the calendar, 10 years later so if it's his birthday then it's his birthday map like it's 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 just like little details
2: it's like how did that not like what it's so true and 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 it would, would have been such an easy way to begin to make the young dave section less generic because it's a very generic kid movie before he meets cage and it would have been able to make it much less generic if he'd been a, a, embarrassed to tell somebody it's his birthday or like Embarrassed that somebody starts singing Happy Birthday and the kids pick on him, and the girl sees it like or really happy about it being his birthday. There could have been any number of things, you know, like his mom dresses him in his new birthday sweater from grandma, and it's hideous, you know. Like there could have been any any number of things that that would make it feel less generic. And I just couldn't believe it when it, as you say, when it cut and it made such a big deal out of it being the same day and his birthday. I, I, am sorry. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> the, the the laziness of the filmmaking in a lot of ways here is, is starting to kill me.
0: It's kind of crazy, right? Like on one end, houses sophisticated it all is and then on the other just how blind they seem to be of what they're doing it almost feels like their editor was looking at two different scripts half the time (laughs) (laughs) it's weird the birthday thing would have been great That would have put so much validity behind those kid scenes for me because you could have set up that his birthday is traumatic for him. You know, he had this incident where this latent power emerged and no one believed him and he had to leave town. It would have been a really good framing device for this kid's sort of phobias. And
2: it would have made him so much more apprehensive about Cade showing up again on his birthday that you're totally right to make the birthday traumatic experience would have been such a good way to go. This is such a minor thing, but, like, her name is Becky
1: Barnes, and all I could think was Bucky Barnes? (laughs) Oh, man. I've got a
0: doodler of a name leap for you later, Joey. This is like (laughs) one of those National Treasure 2 connections, but I'll save it.
1: This isn't Marvel, but it's close enough. Like, everything, Becky Barnes, Bucky Barnes, it's all... It's all too close. Oh, one joke that I did laugh at. If we're if we're jumping ahead to the time jump and we're now in present day, when Dave comes back to his apartment and he sees the fourth grade report or whatever on his refrigerator. And he's got a B- minus on it, and Alfred Molina's like, yeah, I feel like a B- is generous. Like, that's the only thing I've had to read for ten years? Like, that's such a terrible life. Like, the only thing you have, like, the only entertainment you have in ten years is a report that, like, a, a nine-year-old wrote? Like, you, you sort of feel bad for the bad guy.
2: And did you imagine Alfred Molina and Nicolas Cage taking turns in the urn and reading it out loud <laughs> to one another just because there's <laughs> nothing else? Do they call a truce in the urn and, like, just hang out for ten years? Do you know what I mean? Like, that was, that was clever. I did think that was clever.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. And I love the idea that once they were trapped in the urn, there's like a picture of them on the side of the urn, trapped in. Did you catch that? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Desperate. One thing that kind of blew my mind was like, someone bought this thing. Like, <laughs> no one, like, someone went in and like raided cages, mystical shop, didn't think twice about having like a tag sale, and that wouldn't have bothered me so much if they had knocked it over accidentally. But it just like comes alive, I guess, right? Because it's been ten years. It's just, I, right. I don't yeah, know. Right. that kind of glosses over
1: me they're like looking at it and it's shaking like it's standing there by itself shaking and he's like why did you buy this not like why is this thing shaking like (laughs) why did
0: you like that's not the question you should be asking right now dude it should be like
1: why is this shaking what is going on
0: and I, I do love, though, when he gets out first and throws the thing out the window and, like, Cage has to do – he looks kind of like Sandman for a minute or something where he's, like, rematerializing. I oh, I guess he's Ash because he's in an urn and stuff. So like, like, <laughs> he has to, like, grab the side of the uh, building. I, that was pretty cool. Was <laughs> I mean,
2: I think it, maybe yeah. it's just
0: Melina and Cage, you know? Like, they yes. they know what they're doing.
2: Yes, exactly. Because mm-hmm. if you reverse a couple of scenes to where we're, we're meeting adult Dave, this Jay Becher- – I can't remember. I'm sorry. Jay Jay Baruchel. Baruchel. Okay, that's the last time I'm going to say his name because this actor is driving me crazy. This is the first thing I've seen, live action thing that I've seen him in that's made really? any impression on me at all. Yeah, totally. His voice is very Christian Slater in in a way that's, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. But he what he's reminding me of there are a lot of people who don't who can't stand Woody Allen's voice and his sort of neurotic hemming and hawing. Jay's delivery of this stuff. To me, is not just fingernails on a chalkboard. It's like someone taking my fingernails and scraping them along a chalkboard against my will. He drives me absolutely crazy. I don't like you... him. I, I I I cannot stand any scene that he's in because he is so bad. Now I like him because I've seen him in. So he, there's a current show on
1: FX called Man Seeking Woman that he's in, and it's great. He was in Undeclared, which is kind of the spiritual sequel to Freaks and Geeks. He's been in a lot of stuff that's sort of like Seth Rogen adjacent. I think it's funny that you seem to hate him in this, and I think Mike doesn't seem too crazy about him, but I'm like totally okay with it just because he's someone that I've grown to really like. I don't think his character is interesting. I don't think what he's doing is necessarily interesting, but I'm okay just sort of hanging out with him because I like him as an actor, which is such a crazy opposite
2: of what you feel about it complete opposite. The, the only thing I know him I know he's a thing, you know, like I, I've seen his name places, like I know he's a he's a going concert. I've just not seen the stuff he's been in, except that my son loves How to Train Your Dragon and its subsequent yeah. properties, which I think are pretty cool. It took me I had to look him up to realize that that's what I knew his voice from. It's hard now because he puts on those movies and I have to leave the room for a little bit because the, <laughs> because he drives me so crazy. I'm sad that this was my introduction to Full Flesh and Blood JB. I'm not buying it. And then And then you get the like his introduction to modern day Becky is that he sees her legs in those stockings and is like hubba hubba hubba. It's this juvenile (laughs) terrible terrible stuff and and that's probably uh, not helping him out at all either.
0: (laughs) I guess I'll split the difference uh, a little bit. Oh, don't don't come down on my
2: side. You know I'm right. You know I'm right.
0: I like him. I don't like him in this. I think he's the weakest element for me in this whole film and his subsequent plot. Like, the kind of idea that he is the focus of this movie uh, is unfortunate because I like everything else but him in this. But I do like him in other stuff. This is the end. Like, I think that's a hilarious movie. Like you said, Joey, all of his sort of Seth Rogen work. But it's weird that he is the most over-the-top thing in this movie of special effects and magic. Like, he feels almost like the Jar Jar bit at moments. Like that is yes. like a vibe that I'm getting.
1: I don't think that's his fault, though. I think that's just like the, the it's terrible character oh. writing.
0: Yeah, it's, it is it and it isn't, though, you know? Like, you got to play it as they want you to, but you also are embodying that character in a lot of ways, right? Like, he's bringing, he's almost like amplifying his personality in this movie, and that's like all, oh, like, that neurosis and that dragging on the words and things. Like, that's just kind of like, I feel he does that in other movies, and here it's sure. like the Sugar Rush version of all that. And I, I wish it was just a little, a little toned down for him feel like he needs to freak out but he needs to keep it believable i'll put this i'm just having a hard time buying him in this
2: you may be right, too, both of you guys. It may be mostly the writing. And and, and I, like I say, I have not seen him in other things, and he did not bother me in How to Train Your Dragon until I knew who he, you know, until I had this in my head. You know, Becky has this line when he gets her to the radio station, she sa- or maybe it's before that. She just says something like, my show is like my one thing. You know, like she's some kind of wounded soul. And I couldn't help finish that line to say, my show is like my one thing. I mean that and my glossy hair and my flawless skin and my perfect <laughs> body. And, do you know what I mean? Like it, it, they put that in because she needs to be a little bit damaged image too but they don't follow it through at all with anything and she ends up being as generic as he is in this movie and and it's too bad because it could have been you know so much more interesting so it's possible that it's not this actor as much as it is the character and he just gets stuck amplifying what for me are the most annoying parts of (laughs) of his personality that that could be what I think this movie does well is that whenever we get lulled into these
1: boring sequences or these things that ring false like Becky's saying how flawed she is, it's not too long before we see Cage turn a gargoyle into a giant metallic flying <laughs> eagle or we get him with his 1935 Rolls-Royce driving through the city which apparently is Cage's actual car by oh. the way. That's a that's a car that he owns Amazing. and the director and the producers were looking for an old car like, a cool car that he could drive, and Cage is like, hey, like, you guys want to use my roles? Like, we can just use this one. That's it's, amazing. Instant production so, credit. <laughs> it's so great. He's the, And he is an EP on this one. He is an executive producer on this. I don't know if just because of the car or what. <laughs> as boring as this movie can get at times, or sort of as strayed from sort of the core through line of this kid learning how to do magic, it's not too long before, like, all right, like, we got to see something crazy visual because that's what people want to do.
2: Yeah, and those sequences come alive, as you say. And and Cage is... I'm loving him in this as his sorcerer. I'm not questioning the fact that he has no accent. You know, whereas Alfred Molina... I guess Alfred Molina was trapped in the doll thing... For all those centuries, and so he retains his original accent, and Cage doesn't. I don't know. I'm not. Bo- I'm not, not bothered by it. <laughs> I'm enjoying him. I'm enjoying him with the exposition scenes. That stuff is so much more alive to me.
0: It does come alive with these magical moments. It's really crazy how I thought those were going to be the cheesy, sort of sappy things, and that the other stuff might be what I would be interested in. And it's weird how this movie just kind of strays from that at times. You know, it reminds me of Next a little bit, Joey, where it's like we need you. To stop this nuke. There's a nuke plot terrorist thing going on in LA. And Cage just kind of goes on vacation and, like, <laughs> meets Jessica Beale and, like, goes to the Grand Canyon. And, like, that's kind of happening here where Barashell is like, You're the one. You're the chosen one. And he's like, I got a date. You know? <laughs> like, I <got> a
2: date.
0: <laughs> Which I
1: think is kind of fine on his character's behalf, but I don't understand why Cage is okay with it. But it's almost like he doesn't there, want to right? push him too far. Well, he, he is at times. Like, he's just yeah. like, All right, like, you know, I'll be here. Like, I'll just be hanging out. (laughs) Like he kind of lets him do his thing sometimes. I mean, not always. He sort of puts up a fight or he shows that he's sort of disinterested or he's like, we got to do something like, you know, the world's going to end. But it seems like (laughs) a few times that he's just sort of like, hey, you know, dude, I get it. Like I've been in love too. I've loved this girl for 1200 years. Do your thing, I guess.
0: I think that might come down to, like, these writers are at conflict with the story. Like, the story's going in one direction, and these writers are just forcing this other shit upon it and saying, like, no, 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 like, do this first. And the story just has to be like, okay, I'll just, like, go to the park and read a book or something (laughs) for a scene or two. Like, come back to the dungeon when you're ready to do magic.
1: Although I do like when they go to the park and Cage is like, what's so special about this bench? And it turns out it's the bench that stares at the NYU radio station, he's, he's that's where he sits to creepily watch Becky. Yeah. But what I love about this part is they're just eating – And Cage is just holding a pickle and waving a pickle (laughs) around. Like, it's just such a great visual. Like, I don't know why. I don't know if that's his decision. I don't know if that's in the script. Cage holding a pickle. Like, I now have a picture on my computer of Cage holding a pickle that I'm going to have forever. Like, it's just, it's as good to me as Cage with the elephant in Bangkok Dangerous. It's just these crazy, like, Cage and a weird object in one shot.
2: Every time we go off uh, with Dave and David Becky or whatever, I want to be with Cage. I want to follow Cage. Even as crazy as that is, waving the pickle around, it's so much more truthful to me than these other scenes i'm just so much more interested in those scenes which again might be my might be my age i'm not sure but i totally agree that stuff is great on i think it's on that bench dave tells cage tells balthazar that becky is the one you know he, she wrote him a note that he didn't even get 10 years ago and she's the one i mean Oh, but i think we're supposed to believe it I, I, I and i don't hey she's leaving lady pretty she's gotta be the one it, it's true and in these scenes where you have dave and becky together i start googling things and so i was imd being becky and she's in the new malik film did you know that oh, oh yeah yeah, yeah. No, i did i did see that because i was looking yeah so i guess she's like a legit actress i don't know and it just she's not given anything to do in this movie nothing to do which as we're talking about national treasure might be actually a step up for being told to shut up most of the time <laughs> <laughs> um, and then if you if you listen to her on any of the special features, she has the craziest British accent. Really? And yeah, like 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 a fake one, you know, like a fake British accent, but it's real. And she could be great. I don't know. I'm I'm really curious to see. You know, we've skipped one thing that I wanted to mention too, that was one of my favorite parts in this movie. After the the big fight in Chinatown, which as yeah, you said yeah, yeah, yeah. visually yep. Is, yep. is spectacular, Cage and, and Dave are, are walking up to the cops and they <laughs> yeah. end up in cop outfit, like he magically turned them into basically like his character from World War trade Center, right? I mean, the same yeah. mustache, and uh, Dave has the same mustache on, and he puts on the accent. It's such a great moment. I wanted to see more of that kind of thing. That that moment, really, I thought that was great. Hey, what do you got? Did you see what happened here? You know what? Bottle rocket meets paper dragon in this Asian festival, and lit it up like a
3: birthday cake. We got swamped with calls saying it was a real dragon. Ah! Between you and me, Cap, I think some of these folks were hitting the Saki pretty hard. Uh, Saki's Japanese, actually.
1: As fun as this movie can be, like, in this scene especially, like, they just don't have enough fun. I love that Dave is sort of a fish out of water. Like, he's feeling, he's like, like, I have a mustache now? Like, what's going on? And he's just, like, rearing back and, like, just roaring with laughter and, like, oh, man, like, isn't it crazy how we're all cops and doing cop things? And it's so amazing. Like, I thought immediately, especially because I knew we were talking to you about this thought immediately of World Trade Center, thought immediately of Cage as a cop. I mean, this is sort of like a hacky New York accent, but it also fits the situation perfectly. Like, I love this scene.
0: Yeah, this to me is what the movie needed a lot more of. And it felt like a part of the essence to me in a weird way. Like, this is stuff that reminded me of Sword in the Stone type stuff. Like, Merlin would turn his apprentice into, like, animals and stuff so that he had to, you know, have compassion and learn what it was like to be a lesser life form and care about other things and protecting, and this is sort of that kind of thing where it's like we're gonna throw you into the deep end and we're gonna shapeshift and we're gonna turn into cops and who knows what else we're gonna do next and stuff. But they don't do it again. It's kind of disappointing. And we get one great line when Cage is like, you know, unless you want to get turned into a pig who just loves physics, uh, yes, <laughs> sort of, yeah. you know, yeah. referencing back to that as well. I'm like, man, they really should have just beefed this up with a lot more of that Merlin stuff and just have Balthazar be like a surrogate and have this uh, Dave character be like a surrogate for the young Arthur or something like that and just use all those sort of beats and apply it to what else you have going on here.
2: Yeah, imagine a version of this part of the movie where the Becky stuff is either gone or, or just downplayed and where Dave is a little less neurotic and where you have instead he's dealing with the trauma of this birthday and he's either he's actually not very good at magic or is just trying to reject Cage or he's just very eager and Cage is trying to teach him all these lessons. You end up with their relationship being explored more than going off with the whole Becky thing which feels tangential to the actual plot of the movie. This scene is as you say is sort of a glimpse at what that alternate universe movie could have been and I wish that we were watching that one.
0: I even get a moment with Cage earlier I think uh, you know I said something about Star Wars earlier but he does sort of have like more of that Jedi temperament to me and even the looks and stuff they do a terrible Star Wars joke later and everything like that
1: I feel like this is really the point the movie where it's a matter of which apprentice wants it less that jay or (laughs) dave Dave is off doing his thing with becky sort of this british kind of rock star or magician or i don't know what like i don't know if he's like a chris angel type but it's the guy that alfred molina recruits and i feel like that guy is someone i've seen in a lot of things but i looked at his IMDb and i don't know that i recognize him but he just feels familiar and they're both so bad at being apprentices and they don't seem to care about it. And I guess that's sort of the joke, that you have these two powerful sorcerers really dedicated to the cause. They could not find any less interested apprentices if they tried. It sort of feels weird. Like, I know that it's like a joke and a funny thing, like, look how bad they are. But I wish that they were, like, into it or just trying to get better. It's not interesting to watch them do
2: things. Yeah, what I wondered as I was watching this, what if Alfred Molina's protege ended up being just really good like really dangerous good you know and maybe maybe he starts out not and then is like put under the spell by alfred Alfred melina that like focuses his energy but if he was just you know like a shark and you could still have all the funny stuff if you wanted with jay and people getting hit in the balls and dogs farting and all this stuff you could still have all that stupid stuff if you wanted to with with dave but if it was him being hunted like truly hunted that could have been pretty cool
0: yeah, I actually kind of like this guy. Like I mentioned before, I think he's the better of the two because at least like he's using his magic somehow to make a living, right? Like he reminds me again of Next, right? He's hiding in plain sight. I like that they introduce him, but what I would thought they were going for was this whole deal with the Grimhold, right? Like we didn't really talk about this Russian doll trap that holds these powerful wizards inside of it. And I figured Molina wanted the doll because he was going to sort of recruit all of the evil wizards that Cage put away. Let's team up and go against him. And then at the end, he would sort of suck their power and revive Morgana at the end there. So it was a bit of a disappointment where the first guy does a cool dragon show and everything but he just sort of catches on fire and fizzles out like a firework. The other one, the little witch, doesn't do any display of power whatsoever. So I I felt that those were also sort of missed opportunities, especially coming out with this apprentice character who's like completely different.
2: One of the other things I, I liked about this movie was that it was very clearly shot in New York, and it actually stuck out to me partly because every other Cage Club movie that I've gotten to join you guys on has taken place in part or in, in, in whole in New York, sort of unintentionally. I thought that was kind of that was kind of neat. Bringing out the Dead was very clearly New York, World Trade Center was obviously New York, and then there was some some good New York stuff in Knowing, and I Think that this movie used locations well, and it was it was pretty clear that, that it really was New York. In fact, at one point they used one of my old subway stops. And I forget the exact scene, but it was it's anyway, it was neat to see some, some sort of authentic New York locations used pretty well here.
0: I also like how we got the Token New York set piece, which is the sewer layer. We've had <laughs> Lex Luthor had one in Superman, the Ninja Turtles are famous for it, and I'm sure down at the line there's been a few others, but here we go again. I remember when this movie was being made, it, it actually made the evening news. Because two nights in a row, they crashed a car through the Sabaros while filming this chase (laughs) sequence. So, you
2: know, it (laughs) happens
0: one night, it's not quite news, but two nights in a row, then it made it.
1: I thought for a second that it was the chase scene that took a while. But apparently that Chinatown sequence took five months to plan, and you can sort of see, like, it's yeah. this really high production value, and they used half a ton of confetti in the sequence. So wow. that's, like, a, you know, a, a metaphorical ton. It's a literal half a ton, but it's just, like, that's a crazy, extravagant, huge scene, and I think it works. In a movie full of cool visuals, I think that's the thing that stands out the most.
2: Yeah, there's very little of this movie that I would watch again. You'd have to pay me quite a bit of money to watch a lot of this movie again. But that section I would watch again for free.
0: I just thought it was a little strange that this huge parade was happening in the middle of the night on a random day. I, I mean, it kind of made it seem like you turned a corner into Chinatown, and this happens all the time. But
3: It was Dave's
2: birthday. <laughs> oh, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, that's kind of an incredible fact. I thought that confetti, I thought that was mostly CGI, to be honest with you. I thought they were just going over the top, going like, look what we can do. <laughs> like We could just have so many little elements on screen.
1: One thing that I want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet is the Mirror sequence about getting like sh- like thrown into that mirror world. I don't know like what the point of it is other than to look cool. But like it looks so cool <laughs> yeah. that there's apparently a magic spell that you can cast on glass that if you throw somebody through it or if they go through it, they suddenly exist in the world as they know it, but everything is flipped horizontally. And the only way to escape is to do the same thing and go through another piece of glass. There's no real, like, long-term payoff here, I don't think. When they're driving in that chase scene, and Alfred Molina casts that spell, and then Cage's car sort of crashes through it. And now they're in the mirror in New York City, and they have to go through it again. Like, it's just very cool looking.
2: I don't know why this is bringing this up for me, but could you guys imagine the Guillermo del Toro version of this movie? Like, the mirror thing just got me. Like, like, if there was a whole section in Act 2 that was they got thrown to the mirror, you know, oh, side man. of New York. would have been great. And had to deal with that, right, and find their way back and all this stuff. And I don't know why Guillermo would be the person to do it, but something about that flashed in my mind. Like, all I want as I'm watching the last two-thirds of this movie is uh, some other version of it.
0: I like the bathroom fight when Cage whips this out the first time. It's just funny that Molina tracks down Dave and he's like, Dave, I'm going to kill you. Like, why are you even bothering <laughs> You know, it's just like he, he just revels in it. Uh, and then Cage does the spell, and Molina goes, ah, the old Hungarian mirror trick. Haven't seen that in a long time. And I'm like, of course you haven't. First you were trapped in an urn for 10 years. Then you were trapped <laughs> in a doll for a 1,000 years. Like, you haven't seen that in forever. I'm surprised you know the name of it. But it was cool that they use it on each other. Like, I like that display of power, that they each sort of have each other's tricks to a degree. I don't know if Molina ever really throws plasma, but you can do the mirror thing. Yeah. You know,
1: it's less cool. I feel like this is something that when they were writing, they're like, oh, man, this is going to be great. Like, this is amazing. That This is going to be, like, so cool. People are going to love this. When they summon that girl from Salem, who apparently is the actual first girl that they, like, burned at the stake or drowned in Salem. They summon her to do, like, one job. Like, she does her one job. She sort of kidnaps Becky. And then they just knock her out, and she's gone from the movie. I guess it's supposed to be creepy and weird and kind of cool, but it's just like, she's kind of visually strange, because she's like this relic of old in the modern world, and then she's just gone.
0: She's a waste, you know? I mean, it's what I was talking about earlier, like, it feels in another version that she was a henchman of some type, doing magic shit, and like, going up against Becky, maybe casting allusions to Dave, and doing all that seductive stuff, or not, I don't know, but it just feels like we could have at least seen her do one thing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> she's got a completely, like, off-screen performance for the most part.
2: I think part of it has to do with how many writers they probably had on this movie. I mean, there are, what, there are four or five credited writers?
1: There's three that did the screen story, and then three that did the screen play. And I think yeah, one, the one, one that sort of over. Over. Yeah, yeah, so there's five people helped write this movie.
2: Well, those are the only the ones with credit, right? So you're gonna have to imagine that there are probably five more. I would guess that that many people had their hands on the script, and it's not necessarily a bad thing that can turn good movies better and but it can also turn a bunch of uh, of good ideas into even more wasted opportunities. I feel like that in a lot of these kind of sequences that I bet in another draft of the script that girl had something really cool to do. Now, I don't know that she needed to be in the movie. Maybe they could have cut it entirely or found another way to do this stuff. But you're right. When these sort of things come up, you think, oh, uh, like, that was such a waste. What isn't a waste, what I think is really cool, is when there's the Persian quick rug, like it's
1: like the quicksand rug. And it's these kind of things that like that's not something I need to know that doesn't need to be throughout the movie. That's just like a cool magic thing. Like this whole sequence confuses me. That like there's the, the Indiana Jones thing that Jay is doing, and yeah, I'm not sure why yeah. he has to do that. Like I don't yeah. know anything that's happening here. But at one point, Cage just walks on a rug, and it's just a quicksand rug? He's like, oh no, not this again. And then like, he guys just sort of get his way out. Like, it's a really cool visual thing again, but none of this sequence makes sense. Like, Alfred Molina's there with Becky, and Jay Barisol's got to get the little nesting Like, it's just, everything here is just weird.
0: There's a couple moments like this throughout the movie. There's a moment during the chase where Bearshell turns their car into, like, a crappy car, right? And the other guys have, like, this garbage truck, and they put the dumpster on their car, and then it just kind of stops and turns into, like, a foot chase. Not even. They're just, like, Alfred Molina just, like, got out of his garbage truck and walked away. Like, it was very confusing why it would end so suddenly. And then there was sort of this other scene. Here is sort of my main logic problem was everyone needed Dave to find the Russian nesting doll but they both sort of find it without him like alfred morlina goes to the antiquity store and casts a spell and sees the old lady pick it up and bring it home so he didn't ever need to find dave nick cage creates a storm downtown and he's like this is my Grimhold tracking device i'm like what do you need dave for i was like what is this kid even doing in this movie
2: sometimes (laughs) well he needs dave because it's dave's birthday I mean, wait, wait, he needs Dave because Dave is the prime Merlinian. That's why he needs Dave.
0: That is kind of another sign of cheesiness. I mean, how long did it take them to come up with that? Two seconds? Like, oh, the prime Meridian and the prime Merlinian. Like, oh, (laughs) I get it. Like, you looked at a globe and, (laughs) like, Meridian, Merlinian.
1: What's weird about this part of the movie is now that everybody kind of has what they're looking for, not even everybody, now that Alfred Molina sort of has everything, that to get Becky back Jay was like okay here's my ring here's the Nesting Doll just like take whatever I just want the girl back and so he's sort of got everything Cage now knows that he has everything we get the Cage advice of the movie which is something that we haven't done in a while but the Cage advice is like the wrong advice for the movie where he's basically just like you know I understand what you did you never really know how much time you're going to have with the people that you love so just spend that time with them
3: no one knows
1: how much time
3: they have to be with the people that are the most important enjoy it
1: and it's like okay cool but like you just spent a thousand years looking for this kid you found him he sort of screwed up and now it's just like okay now bye like just you know hang out with this girl because i can't be with my girl we find out later that cage sort of goes on like this suicide type mission right to sort of just take down balthazar and sacrifice himself to save the world but it's just it's a weird message and just it's almost like the end of Dave's story or it could or it could be the end of Dave's story.
2: Yeah, you're so right. And at this stage, I'm so ready for Jay's story to be over. I was sort of hoping that it would be. I knew it wasn't. Obviously, it can't end that way. But but you're right. It feels like, again, like that maybe this speech was lifted from a different draft of a different movie where maybe Cage had been different along the way or maybe the, the Dave had been different along the way. So I don't want to say I'm checked out at this point, but I'm like I'm two thirds checked out at this point
0: what I kind of like about the Cage character arc, if you want to call it, is that he can detect when Dave's lying and yet he himself is nothing sort of but like this liar in a way. He tells these half-truths and he's like, you know, I need you. We need the doll. We gotta stop, you know, Melina and all this stuff. But he never tells him anything about Morgan Le Fay or Veronica or all these other things about the doll and the Merlinian. Like, Jay Baruchel's gotta find that out from the bad guy. And he's like, why don't you go talk to your master? It seems like there's things he's keeping from you you know and it's like are you keeping things from me oh my god you're <laughs> good at the end here it's weird because I don't feel like Cage is the one who needed to learn the lesson and that almost feels like where they're going with it in a weird way he's like I learned from you Dave from all your nerve, like all the crazy shit that you've done has taught me the way like I'm gonna go fight for my woman which again is weird is like it just also seems a little strange I mean there would be no movie but it also seemed a little strange that he, he didn't try and think of another way to get like his like Yes, he did. There was that one scene where he tries to figure out the demerging spell because like, the love of his right. life merged with the soul of the witch and then got trapped in the doll. So Then he kept trapping people in the doll so it got harder to get her out. Okay, so <laughs> I <into> answered my own <laughs> yeah. one okay. trick.
1: We're rocketing toward an ending where Cage is to take out Alfred Molina. He's kind of got to take out this great evil. And then we get there. The girl that Cage has been in love with, Monica Bellucci, Veronica, is possessed by Morgana effect Like, it's... I worried for a second, and it wasn't that, but I think I only worried because it wasn't immediately clear. I worried that, like, the girl that Cage was in love with was also the Bat. Like, I didn't realize at first that, it was, that she had possessed her or sort of to, to sacrifice herself. It seems weird, like, the reveal at the end that it's not... They're not the same person. It's just the evil spirit is within the girl that Cage loves.
2: This is where it would have been helpful to have that, those first four minutes, a little bit longer. Uh, if you're going to do that to explain this stuff or or have us feel this stuff more at the end i think i would understand it It would sort of penetrate more if i had a chance to see what the heck was going on in the first four minutes of the movie it wouldn't have to be long but just just a just a little bit to sort of make that all a little more
1: clear i was watching the beginning of the movie and i didn't see monica bellucci on screen and then i was checking imdb while i was watching i was like Wait, Monica Bellucci's in this? Like, where is she? And, like, we had seen her, but, like, she's on screen for maybe four seconds? And, it's just, yeah. and like she I mean she's not a huge actress but she's you know she's a beautiful actress that people know and just give her a little bit of screen time up front like you, you barely even know that Cage is in the beginning you don't even ah it's ugh. yes 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 that, that's it and, no, you're and full right. stop
0: <laughs> yeah I think you know I think it could have worked if they had just used her a little more in the middle of the film like they tried to do that one deal where Molina casts a spell on a, someone walking down the street and it turns into Monica Bellucci and I'm like what's yes. she doing in this movie I was like, oh, that was her, like at the start of the film, you know? So, yeah, if they had just taken a little more time at the start and then somewhere in the middle here, delve into an adventure of the past or something, because it even says, you know, we were all friends once, like, what made you turn against us? And like, maybe cutting back to that moment where (laughs) Molina felt betrayed in the love triangle and all that kind of stuff, or like, you know, have Molina yearn for her as well and be like, when I release Morgana, she's going to look like. Veronica and I'll have the best of both worlds and it's all going to be great and everything. And there seems like there would have been space for it, but you know, we had to focus on Jay Baruchel's freaking physics project. I have no idea what's going on with the lightning music.
1: (laughs) Yeah. What's sort of weird at the end, and I'm not sure if it's ironic or if it's supposed to be ironic, the the way that the world is sort of saved, it's not really through magic. It's not through Cage. It's not through Dave sort of learning what to do it's the fact that Becky readjusts a satellite dish that stops the circle from being complete and stops Morgana's like power. Like it's weird that this whole movie has been about Dave. And I know that he sort of has this, you know, triumphant victory at the end where he stops the magic and he has the magic within him. You know, it's sort of like Neo stopping the bullets in the in the hallway. And, and sort of the music in the background reminded me of the Matrix. Yeah. I get that he sort of has his triumphant moment here, but the only reason the world isn't destroyed by this invisible magic that's apparently invisible to everybody but these magicians
2: is because a satellite dish was moved. <laughs> like it just, it, it's just weird. <laughs> yeah and i bet somebody's patting themselves on the back saying look how integral we made becky to the movie she saves the world like no you didn't make her integral to the movie you gave her this one sort of ridiculous thing to do and maybe i'm just too cynical at this point in this movie and, and i should give them more credit but that is that is you're totally right that is a strange thing
0: here's where my mind went is that at one random point in the movie she follows him up to a roof and she's like i got i'm afraid of heights uh so i was like oh this is her conquering her fear of heights and that's what the movie was really all about it was (laughs) just about her getting over that and then i was thinking a step (laughs) further i bet you like dave's character had the fear of heights at some point and he had to get over that with the eagle chrome eagle monster thing flying above the city and yeah and it just felt like let's give this to her make her character (laughs) beef her up a little bit because as it is she's just spinning records
2: while we're writing alternate versions of this movie can i can i make one one more suggestion can we imagine for a second? The version of this movie that's Becky's story because one thing that sort of jumped out at me at the end here is that as they're driving up to the building that she's going to get out and climb up into and move the satellite dish, Dave can see the fire, the the magic fire going from satellite to satellite dish, and she can't, right? So she does not see any of this magic going on. Imagine the version of this movie where Becky is this girl who, when she was 10 years old, this kid wrote her this note, and then he went off and peed his pants somewhere, and then 10 years later he's stalking her at college, and then he wants to take her, he's telling her that the world's going to And if she doesn't climb this building and you know what I mean like it it would be like it would be a thriller right like she'd be doing everything she could just get get away yeah yeah. she'd be trying to get away from this guy at at all costs and he would come across as so so creepy that I think helps point out the sort of lack of human logic in this movie if you were to take her story seriously this movie you know it wouldn't work like it just wouldn't make any sense
0: one thing I love that about her character which isn't a good thing that happens to her character but it's sort of like something i started noticing it's like a third act character dump that was going on like especially like in the new millennium she sees the magic of balthazar on full display Bearshell is just like hey i'm a wizard uh i do magic and it's all magical and magic stuff and she's like okay let's go (laughs) like i'm
2: with it third act here we come if you can just tell me the truth then i promise i will do my best to understand Okay,
1: uh, okay, the first thing you should know about me Is that I'm a sorcerer Okay I, I can uh, conjure and, and
3: shoot plasma bolts out of my hand I, I, I can uh, speed time up, slow it down uh, Varying degrees of levitation it's, it's all very magical
2: And I thought my last boyfriend was different Because he wore a scarf
1: there's no way that the movie can abandon her at this point, that right. she's committed and that she can't just go away because that's A, terrible feminist writing, but also B, there's not that many characters in this movie. Like, we only really know four <laughs> or five people. We can't just have one be like, I can't handle the magic. Like, she's that's already true. pot committed just by being one of the only people whose names we know. And so she has to come along for the journey. But it is crazy, like, this whole world that she can't see. She's just like,
2: I'm, I'm cool. Like, let's well, just do it. Like, I'm, I'm okay. There's got to be something wrong.
3: <laughs> you know what I mean?
2: Like, there's just got to be something wrong, a little wrong with I, We're I un- it. We're not getting all this I moment. don't understand
0: from, like, an audience perspective, like, why can't she see the fire at this point? Like, shouldn't that be Morgana's rising of the dead? Like, this is her bringing the dead to life. Like, magic is real, the rest of the world. Wake up and turn on the TV and get the helicopters out because there's a freaking pentagon of flames above the Chrysler building.
1: Well, what's that explanation in Jupiter Ascending, like, why the city of Chicago doesn't see these buildings being destroyed like there's some kind of like magic force at work or something right yeah like,
0: but this almost feels like she needs her presence to be known like she is morgana motherfucker like she's waited over a thousand years to take over the world i don't think she wants to keep it a secret i think she wants to announce her presence or at least you know i would we get like all those random quick shots around the world which is just kind oh, of- like
1: the pyramid turning yeah, black what was
0: that that was so baffling
1: <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, like, this is sort let's of where put we... let this way. This like,
0: is... If she could see the fire, it would have made sense where she could have kicked the yeah. satellite dish. It would have made more sense, at least. And, you know, we could have had a scene of her kicking the satellite dish, like, literally. And, like, it's not moving. It's not moving. And it's like, use both feet. Okay. Or she's hanging up the building. <laughs> and then the eagle comes to help her or some, something. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I think the the movie's reason that she can't see it is because they don't want to deal with nine years after 9-11 fire trucks and SWAT teams coming down to lower Manhattan because some crazy shits going on like they don't want to they don't want to deal with that i think but but it might be sort of a missed opportunity because think about how great that bit when chinatown was where cage had to pretend to be the cop like how, how fun would it during the credits to see him and monica bellucci and i suppose dave and becky like pretending to be all these different people to like talk their way out of what was going on down in the in lower manhattan
0: it feels like they had a moment to go full ghostbusters you know and they t- yeah like, yes. and like that's what they it also felt like they wanted to riff off of that, but they're sort of, like, not smart enough to realize what they had, you know? Like, they missed it. Like, they couldn't tell that they could have gone full Ghostbusters at that moment, but, like, I was just (laughs) hoping, you know, hordes of demons were pouring out of that pentagon at some point, but nay...
1: Instead, we have the bull, like that uh, J.B. or oh, the, the Merrill Lynch bull or whatever, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> yeah. cool, like coming to life and sort of charging Cage and then the eagle just swoops in and takes it off. And also at the end here, like we can't not bring up the fact that Cage dies, I guess, and is brought back oh, to yeah. life. Like, I don't yeah. know if he's actually dead dead and Jay Baruchel brings him back to life or if he's sort of near death and just sort of revived. But this is kind of what we'll call it like a half on screen death for Cage. This line when he comes back to life like it was any other actor that I just didn't wholeheartedly love I would groan at. But he's like, Dave, I had a dream that, you know, you were insulting me. The way that he brings it back to life, it's just this same sort of negative Debbie Downer kind of mentality that he's had all movie.
2: All right, here we go, bud. Here we go. Listen, you, you, with all your stupid rules and all those old man shoes, you're constantly saving me with that look in your eyes. Come on! Come on!
3: Come on! Come on! I had a dream. <laughs> you were insulting me, Dave. Repeatedly.
1: Me? Pretty weird, huh? No. Kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And he brings back to life, and then he kisses Monica Bellucci, Dave kisses Becky, and I wrote down that love is real, and that all these couples are just finding love in New York City instead of the world's ending.
0: You have no idea how bad it went at Ving Rhames to come in and, and try and resuscitate Nick Cage at that moment. That just, that's all that was going through my head.
1: And Queen Latifah's like, hey, we got we an gotta unresponsive a <laughs> non-responsive male down in Central Park.
0: And he'd be like, Balthazar Blake, everybody, Balthazar Blake.
2: <laughs> (laughs) Totally, totally. And then, what
1: better way for the movie to end than to fly off on this eagle to France for breakfast? That (laughs) now the world, the world is like it's just it's oh, it's so weird. But then you know, in the in the post credit sequence, we find out that Horvath, that Alfred Molina's character, isn't dead. I guess is that his hat that he picks up, or is that some other character?
0: Okay, did you guys even see him die? Like I saw him get hit and then kind of leave the movie, right? Like he felt like a loose end.
2: It's a franchise. They wanted this to be a franchise. But they didn't even
0: show him, like, sneak off or anything, or, like, turn into a swarm of bugs <laughs> like he was known to do. I knew there was going to be a post-credit sequence, so I just fast forward right to the end through the credits. Oh, man. <laughs> I just knew it. But it was, again, it was just like they showed the pointy blue hat from the Fantasia cartoon, yep. and then they yep. pan over to the bowler hat that Alfred Molina wears, and someone picks it up.
1: They wanted this to be a franchise, but what would you guess the budget is for this movie? <laughs>
0: Oh, uh,
2: 110.
0: I'm going to say more because if G-force was 150, I'm going to say this was at least like 180, 185.
1: This was, this was 150, so you guys oh. were sort of both equally correct. Um, sort of split the difference between the two. How much do you think this movie made? Domestically or worldwide? Dom- domestically. Let me look up worldwide, but domestically. Uh, it's like
0: a game show.
1: Yeah. Keep in mind that we're five years later and there's no talk of a sequel.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm gonna guess this made 73 million dollars domestically. I'm gonna
0: go even lower and say something like 55, 53.
2: You're pretty much exactly,
1: you know, again splitting the middle. It made 63 million domestically. Wow huge flop and then worldwide made another 152 because it is a movie that it's sort of better if you don't understand what's going on you're just looking (laughs) at
0: the visuals (laughs) Um, yeah Yeah, Um, if you're in like beijing you could make up a whole new story with subtitles right and you could
1: (laughs) yeah you give dave a whole new voice and dub him the rough part about this is that it opened on the same weekend that inception opened that was up against tough there and also despicable me was in theaters either the second or the third weekend for despicable me it opened in third place, so it was a really rough time for this to be opening in theaters. Also, Toy Story 3 was still in theaters. This is a movie up against stiff competition, and just $63 million on 150 is kind of a, a big flop.
2: Yeah, especially when you think that to make its money back it has to double its budget to get Princeton Advertising back and all that. Yeah. So it's way, way, way under. Is it better than Inception? Oh, I think I'll have that conversation another <laughs> time. But you're, but you're totally right. There's a bunch of other kids movies out at this time, right? So that's like the kids are going to be more interested in Minions and Toy Story 3. The kids who are a little bit older are going to be interested in not seeing this movie, I guess, or or maybe seeing Inception. Like They're not going to be, you know, a 14, 15, 16 year old kid is probably going to be more interested in that than in sorcerer's apprentice
1: what's kind of crazy is this movie cost 150 million inception cost 160 million so for 10 million dollars more you could have all the crazy stuff going on in inception as opposed to here where just a lot of magic and stuff in new york
0: this was like a tough time for Disney you know like they didn't have their pirates going anymore really right the pirates were done so they were sort of scrambling for a new franchise and it's like well what ride can we make what names do we have and like they kind of tried with John Carter right they tried to do a few things and it's like well we got this name the Sorcerer's Apprentice so like let's just try and like tag that on to something and build a franchise with it that's almost what this feels like you know and like I I feel like if they weren't so eager to do that this could have come out a whole lot better just like that that obligatory homage in the middle of this with the mop scene and everything. It just came across like I don't want to say like I was embarrassed to watch it, but I was definitely cringing at where they were going.
2: Well, and also because if you think about the original uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice in Fantasia, Fantasia was meant for kids, like kids' kids. Four, five, six, seven year olds, you know? And this movie's not for that for that demographic, so there's going to be no I don't think there's a lot of residual love for the Sorcerer's Apprentice that's going <laughs> to mm-hmm. bring those people it's not not like Pirates of the Caribbean where you could go on that ride at five, at ten, at fifteen, at twenty, at fifty, and enjoy the the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. You know, like that's going to carry some more goodwill if if that if that's the way that that works as opposed to as opposed to this. So maybe if they'd taken the name away and made a better movie, like don't call it The Sorcerer's Apprentice, but use that as your sta- as your starting place and just make a different movie, then maybe it would have been you know they might have be- had a better shot at the franchise if you didn't try and tag it to Sorcerer's Apprentice. Like modern Merlin. Exactly, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, the time would have been ripe for that. I mean, people have been making parts of that book. You know, that book, The Once in Future King, is several books in one, you know, like different sections, and people have been making parts of that book over the years forever, you know? Like, you've got Sean Connery at moments, you know, doing it, and like all the way backwards and forwards. You know, Kieran Knightley was even Guinevere as a savage in like one version, and they go all crazy with that source material. So it would have been cool to build up like that franchise, you know, do The Once in future king in modern times and build up those four books and do like eight movies out of it if you want
1: but instead we just got this i guess i guess there's always the possibility that there could be a sequel to this i don't think there's going to be there'll be a reboot before there's a sequel (laughs) (laughs) national treasure 3 is going to come out 10 years after national treasure 2 like maybe in five years there's a sorcerer's apprentice 2 who knows I, I well, do like the cage kind of looks like the cage that we're going to see in Outcast, at least the long sort of mm-hmm. medieval hair. Um, so maybe that's going to be a sort of a spiritual sequel to this.
0: I get a real sort of like Aragon the Strider sort of vibe from him too at moments. Like I think I said he stepped out of Middle Earth once or twice.
2: And wasn't he up for that part? Wasn't he considered yeah, in that role? Yeah, I
0: believe he was, which sort of made my mind wander to <laughs> why he wanted to jump into the fantasy genre. It's like he couldn't do that. So
1: He said he didn't want to do that because he doesn't like watching his own movies, and he wanted. He was really looking forward to seeing those movies. So he would rather oh. enjoy them as a fan than do it.
0: <laughs> so Tobin, he wasn't even going to watch this.
2: <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly exactly i'm not sure i buy that as a reason for not wanting i could see not wanting to go to you know leave your family for three years or whatever and uh, i think i think it was also that yeah 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 Uh, it was a combination of factors
0: yeah because i don't think he would turn down like star wars or something like that but i could see yeah like having to travel to new zealand halfway across the world for like years and years and not
2: knowing (laughs) if it's going to be any good too right yeah
0: and we wouldn't have gotten all these other cage films so right
2: so that's all i have anything else that either of
1: you want to talk about the sorcerer's apprentice
0: I got two small things. One, there was a deleted scene on my copy that I watched. And I wouldn't have mentioned it if it it wasn't for the fact that Cage is sort of like, he's in a park reading Don Quixote. And he bumps into Dave and he's like trying to get Dave to like come back and do magic with him and stuff. But Dave has to like go to school. The only reason I mentioned this is because of the Don Quixote. Because in Wicker Man, there's a lot of Don Quixote references, you know. That's like a Cage thing like I I have a feeling he's into that like he integrated that into here and it just made me think like how great he would be as Don Quixote like, that feels like such a good yeah. role for I mean, maybe in 10 years or with good makeup call Terry Gilliam because I think he found his man of La Mancha like, I don't know about <laughs> you guys but like I watched it deleted scene and all those thoughts just started rushing through my mind now Joey this is a bit of a stretch <laughs> this is what Cage Club has started to do to me but well you
1: you're know you're, it's not started to do <laughs> like you are losing your mind
0: <laughs> there are parts that have gone missing I think uh, <laughs> here's a connection that I Balthazar's full name is Balthazar Blake His girlfriend is named Veronica When they get married She'll be Veronica Blake Which is close to Veronica Lake Who played a witch (laughs) in I Married a Witch Which was (laughs) one of the Source materials for (sighs) BeWish So wizardry Witchcraft
1: I don't even know what to do with you sometimes, Mike. Because
0: it's, it's amazing,
1: like the leaps that you take sometimes. I mean, I love it. I'm going to leave it in the podcast. But like,
2: whoo, we are getting, cra- we're getting
1: crazy. You're getting crazy. Some of these cage connections.
2: Tobin, anything else? Uh, just to say that I'm really excited for Becky's Terry Malik film. Yes, very much so. <laughs> Let's do that too. Okay. Okay.
1: <laughs> um, so, Tobin, thank you for joining us for another movie. You'll be back for a couple more. I, I hope that the next ones—I don't remember what we have up next. But I hope the next ones are a little bit more enjoyable than. The, I mean, not that this is not oh. enjoyable, but I hope that it, I hope it's a little bit more
2: well thought out. yeah me too me too but this is it's always fun to talk to you guys this is this is is lots of fun
1: so for all things cage you can go to cageclub.me you can read our reviews find past podcasts follow us on twitter rate review subscribe on itunes all things cage at cageclub.me i'm joey lewandowski and i'm mike manzi and that was tobin addington and we'll see you next time on cage club